Uh, praise God for that message. Uh, you know, Brother Timothy said when he was talking about uh, saying the truth to yourself, say it again and say it again and say it again and find the Jonathan to say it to you, uh, you will begin to believe it. It'll start to sink in. You actually see that in Psalm 62. I love it. Right there in the very beginning, when David is already saying the right thing to himself and believing it, what he says is, I shall not be greatly moved. Amen. But then later in the psalm, he repeats it and he drops the modifier. He says, I shall not be moved. And it's as if the more David talks to himself, the more he realizes, hey, you know what, David, there's no greatly about it. I shall not be moved at all. Trust in the Lord. I shall not be moved, period. I love that psalm. Last night, um, this is just wonderful. Yesterday, we began to consider the, uh, the truth of the church. And we talked about the fact that even there in Ephesians, where the church is, he has given himself, or Christ has loved and given himself for the church. And that's every single one of his children, the church. And yet the word that he uses is assembly because that's what we're looking forward to. He says, I will that they all be with me. And so we belong even now to an assembly that is not yet seen visibly whole altogether, but will be, absolutely will be assembled. That's where we're headed. <clears throat> Last night, my dear friend, Jeff Watkins, he uh, messaged me and said, look what I read in the book, in the book I'm reading tonight. Look what I read just tonight. I don't know what the book is. I don't know who wrote it, but this is great. I'm going to read it to you. He says, now the bridge that connects the houses we live in today and the one we will dwell in someday is the church. It is the witness too, and even an in Coate, in Choate, I had to look this one up, an inchoate embodiment of the eschatological household, an inchoate embodiment of the eschatological, eschatological household. Inchoate is, a, here's a definition of inchoate, a state of activity or entitlement that is characterized by partial completion of an intended outcome or state. A good word. It describes the church very well, doesn't it? Partial completion. The church, even in itself, Grace Chapel, Primitive Baptist Church, is a completion. It is complete, but it's a partial completion of an intended outcome or state when all of the church is assembled together. It has one foot, the church has one foot in this world and the other in the world to come. It teaches us the meaning of this world by promoting gratitude for it and showing us how to glorify God here. But all the while, it reminds us that this is not our final resting place. It shows how the very institutions that make life livable here, like marriage, family, church, those are the institutions that make life livable here, right? It shows how the very institutions that make life livable here actually serve as signs pointing to the world to come. The wonderful description of the church. He texted me at 1130 last night and said, 
what I read just tonight. It's wonderful. <clears throat> we could spend a week seminar on the church. And so I want to just tell you this morning what my, my desire, my hope, the reason that I believe this is on my heart, what I want you to walk away from. I want us all to be able to walk away saying like David, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To be able to walk away this week and saying more than ever, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, tent doesn't sound like maybe high living to you, but what he means is over there in the tents of wickedness, dwelling, that's where your comfy bed is, that's where they have everything plush and wonderful. And David says, to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord is far superior than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I want us to have a renewed love for the church of Jesus Christ. And by church, I mean the one that is assembling now and growing to maturity, but even more specifically, the one that you belong to. And if you don't, you need to find one. I hope you walk away wanting to find one. The church, the visible manifestation of that that you belong to right now. How do we value it? So before I get into the building, uh, I remember as a kid being fascinated by the Honus Wagner baseball card. I love baseball. I don't know who, I don't even know who Honus Wagner is. I don't think he was that special of a player, to be honest with you, but this baseball card is unbelievably valuable. Uh, I just learned, and that, I was a kid and I was fascinated by that fact. Well, I just learned that a few weeks ago, not, not very long ago, that card was sold again for $6.6 million, this baseball card, piece of paper. Now, the person that bought that card, if, if you're a baseball card person, you want the Honus Wagner baseball card. And you want it because it's the Honus Wagner baseball card. Now, I love baseball, but if you ask me, hey, do you want the Honus Wagner baseball card? I'd say absolutely, because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go sell it for $6.6 million. That's why I want that card. I'm going to trade it for something that's valuable to me. But that's not how the church is, you see. There are a lot of people, listen, there are a lot of people in the world who recognize that the church is valuable. They do. But... They are looking at the church as something they can exchange for something else, a currency exchange, right? It's worth, if I, if I get, if I get into that, then I'll get these other things. Or this is why the scripture will say, talks about people who make merchandise of you. That's people who are quite literally looking at the church and the people in the church and recognizing I can make money off this. The church is valuable. It's a, it, listen, it is a commodity. <laughs> There's a lot of money in church these days. That's not how we value church. We value church like the true collector who just wants to own the card to own it. Like that man, that guy who wanted that pearl of great price and sold everything he had to possess it. That's what he said. That's what he wanted. Not because he thought he could go over here on the exchange and make a little extra bucks by reselling it just to possess it. So that is my desire this weekend. Now, as we look this morning at the building, this evening, Lord willing, at the bride, and tomorrow at the body, what we need to remember is that all of them, all of them begin with Jesus Christ. All of them begin with Jesus Christ, right? 
He is a cornerstone. Who's the building? The church. He is a bridegroom. Who's his bride? The church. He is uh, the head. What's his body? The church. All of these begin. Thank you. <clears throat> now forgive me for my lingering cold symptoms. They all begin with Jesus Christ. This morning I'm going to read two passages. These are the two passages we're going to be considering. <clears throat> You're going to hear these similarities. 1 Peter 2, chapter 2. I'll start in verse 1 and we'll focus a little later. 1 Peter 2, chapter 2. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming, to whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God, precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scriptures from Isaiah, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief corner stone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now let's read Ephesians chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. This one is hard not to get a real long running start at this one, as in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. is kind of where it feels like we should start. We can't do that. Um, and so we're going to start here in chapter two, uh, 2, verse 19. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners. Now, he's talking to Gentiles. So you're, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. There's... There's beautiful things going on here because he's talking to Gentiles and saying, you are now part of the household of God, just like the Jews have always been. But of course, he's also talking, and, and, and because he's talking to Gentiles, he's talking to us. Maybe some of you here are ethnic Jews, maybe. But let me just take a moment here. That concept of Jew and Gentile is very important in the script, very important, because you know there was a time when the ethnic nation of Jews was the chosen people of God. I mean, they were, right? We are used to the New Testament where things are, are spiritual and we, we see more, we see mysteries, things that were mysteries now revealed. And that is all so true, gloriously true. But understand there was a point in history where if you, if you wanted to be close to God, you had to go be a Jew. And we were not Jews, my friends. But Jesus, is what he says right before here in the context, has broken down that wall and has revealed something that was always true, but he was keeping it a secret. It's really fun, actually. All this time, God was keeping this a secret, and suddenly it's manifest that, and there were hints of it, by the way. I mean, all through the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, you'll find um, pretty obvious hints that more than the Jews were going to be included, it wasn't revealed. Now it's revealed. And that's you and me of the household of God. But of course here, he is also at the same time as all that saying the, the true household of God, the spiritual household of God. 
fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the spirit. In first Corinthians, he just says very explicitly, Ye are God's building. You're God's building. Building. The building begins with the cornerstone. Our scriptures say a cornerstone is laid. Now, the idea of a cornerstone is still a very powerful idea. In fact, if you go Google cornerstone, what you're going to find the first 50 hits are not going to be references to actual architecture or building. They're going to be like people's mottos or the names of companies and things like that. Because this concept of cornerstone is very powerful. Now, these days, I don't think Roy can correct me, but I, these days we don't, when we are going and building a building, we don't use the cornerstone the same way. You'll still find them. You'll find on buildings the cornerstone, and it has a prominent place, and sometimes it has the names of people involved etched. It, it's an important idea. But these days in building, it's really more of an idea, concept. Then that was not the case. The cornerstone was critical to the successful building of the building. The cornerstone had to be perfectly square. It had to be uh, perfectly true. Now, isn't it interesting that we still use that word this way? We'll talk about truing things up, or is your measurement true? We'll just throw that out there. We don't have time to dig into that, but he is the way, the truth, and the life, is he not? He is true. That cornerstone, you had to find a stone that was going to be a perfect reference point geometrically, cut perfectly, because all the other, every other stone in the building is taking its reference point from that stone. You're going to take that stone and you're going to put it where you have, the way you want the building to face. You're going to orient the building a certain way based on that stone. And then you're going to, we're talking about building a building. Okay. I'm not being metaphysical here. You're going to go get another stone and you're going to put it next to that one. And you're getting another stone and put it next to that one and next to and next to and next to. And then you're going to get a stone and put it on top of that one and a stone on top of that. And a stone on top of that. And you know what happens if your cornerstone is not perfectly square? By the time you start joining things up, they're going to be all out of line. They won't match up, you see. The building is built that way. Now, in my home church, Medellin Chapel, which I love, uh, Medellin's Chapel is a small building made out of square, big, square-cut limestones. And I, and I love preaching this there because it's very easy to see that in action. That building probably does actually have a cornerstone that was used in this way. Um, regardless, it's a simple square building. And you can look around and see, yeah, if I start putting stones next to the corner this way and that way and up and out, and, and then I start you know, closing it all in, if it's not perfectly square, things are not going to work out so well. The cornerstone has to be perfectly square. Um, over there where that, <clears throat> in Isaiah, where that text comes from, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone. Right after that, what he says is, judgment I will lay to the lion and righteousness to the plummet. And now he's talking about saying, I'm going to take you and I'm going to measure you against the cornerstone. And we're going to find, we're going to see Israel that you don't line up. That's, that's the context. But lion and plummet, a lion is level. Is, is it level? 
And plummet is uh, level vertically. But a plumb bob, we don't use that so often anymore to level things, but it's a, a weight on a string. And if you put a weight on a string and hold it in one place long enough, eventually it's going to come still. And now you know what is perfectly straight and true. Vertically and laterally, perfectly straight and true. The cornerstone, Jesus Christ, is like that, is he not? I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, chosen, the builder, God the Father, chosen by God and precious. This is like what Brother Timothy was talking about yesterday morning. God looking around saying, where am I going to find a king? Where, where can I find a king that can do what I need this king to do? And there's only one who could do it. There's only one king. There's only one worthy. Talk about precious. You know that word precious will say, oh, you're so precious to me. But really what that word means is rare. The more rare something is, Honus Wagner baseball card, precious. There's only one of them. Jesus Christ, precious. There's only one like him. Only one. But that cornerstone is not only the reference for the, the true of the building. That's where all the other stones get their reference point from. What's straight, right? What's true? But it also had to be, I'm talking in building terms, it also needed to be in quality, in, in form, right? If I want to build a building out of this kind of rock, I need the cornerstone to be as pure as possible a representation of that kind of stone. Because you know what, a hundred years later, when we need to replace a stone or two, how are we going to know what kind of stone to get? We're going to go look at the cornerstone. The cornerstone is there to tell us, to show us exactly what the other stones are supposed to look like, even hundreds of years later in building terms. That's how you'd use a cornerstone. That was its purpose. And so Jesus Christ is also the reference material, not only for the, the true, the line uh, of the building, and the layout and the orientation and the direction, but he is also the perfect reference point for what all the other stones in the building should look like and should be made of. That's Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> this becomes a little difficult Right, because if you picture God being the builder, and like Brother Timothy said, where am I going to find the king? There he is. He's Jesus. He's my son. Where am I going to find a cornerstone good enough? Found him. Jesus Christ. Perfectly true. Perfectly pure. There he is. Now to build a building, I got to go find a bunch of other stones that look like him. And you know what happened? He looked down through time, and you know what? I'm going to find some other stones to build my building. And you know what he said? There aren't any. They're none righteous. No, not one. They've all gone astray. They're all corrupt. They're all out of square. They're all jagged. They're all messed up. They're all cracked. There are no stones that look like this one. What am I going to do? Make some, right? That's what he does. Even the contexts of our two passages here talk about that. So now I do get to back up a little bit. In uh, Ephesians Chapter 2, let's just start at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, again, we, we want to start at Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, but we, we can't. God has to, 
if he wants to, he's going to build a building and have an assembly. He's going to have to make his own stones because they don't exist. There are no stones out there that look like him, that look like Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. There's all the broken and, and cracked stones. The spirit that now, this, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we also, we all had our conversation, our way of life. And you know, even if you were born again when you were two and you don't remember it, or in your mother's womb, like John the Baptist, there was a time, I promise you, between conception and when you were born again, when this was your heart. God looked at your heart, and you might have been a little bean in your mother's womb, but you had a heart. And God looked at it and said, walking according to the course of this world, before he changed it. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us ooh, together with Christ. We're already, look, we're already being made like the quickened. When Christ raised from the dead, was raised from the dead, you were raised with him and like him together with Christ and hath raised us up to get, listen to all the togethers. Well, the togethers are wonderful. Isn't that what we're talking about? All of us being together all of us being together, by the way, would not be all that great if Jesus wasn't there. You see, together, us all together, and with Christ, together, <laughs> forever, together with Christ, made us to sit together in heavenly places. In Jesus Christ, we're sitting together with him in heavenly places right now. We're looking forward to a time when we will be manifestly sitting together with him me is close to Brother Reagan over here, to Jesus Christ, and closer. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship. That is, he went out and found we couldn't find any good stones. He went out and got one. He, he chose one. He said, I'll take that one. I love that one. And then he, his workmanship, his, this Greek word is poema. This is not uh, just rough cutting of the edges, but this is beautiful workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in him then. In them, there's Ephesians. Now look at the context of our Peter passage. Look what he says after our text. <clears throat> Let me just go ahead and skip to verse nine. We we read one through six. Verse nine, he says, "But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, that ye should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light, which in time past were not a people." But now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In Isaiah chapter 43, let me just turn there. 
several times in this passage he uses a, a particular word, formed, formed. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine. This is all beautiful, but we're, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. In verse 7, uh, in verse 6, it says, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. All right? This is the great consummation. This is the, the coming togetherness. All of them from everywhere, from the ends of the earth, even everyone that is called by my name. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. God made the stones to put in his building. God did it. You know what that means? In order to be like the cornerstone, you have to be like the cornerstone. You have to be made like the cornerstone. He looks at the cornerstone. He says, I'm, I'm going to go get a, I need to get another rock for my building. How do I know what to get? Well, I'm going to look at the cornerstone and consider it, consider his qualities. And then I'm going to go get a rock that looks like that. Well, he can't find one that looks like that. So he's going to make one that looks like that, that looks like Christ. What does he say in Romans? He says, for whom he did foreknow. Love this, right? For whom he did foreknow. He also did predestine. That means beforehand, your destiny was determined, right? Your destination predetermined, chosen, like the cornerstone was chosen. Now, of course, there was no other choice for the cornerstone, and yet the scripture uses the word elect. Elect, I chose him because he's special. He didn't choose us because we were special, except that he chose to love us, and that made us special. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, to be made to look like him. In 1 Corinthians 15, there's just some wonderful language, verse 47, as, as, is, the, uh, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. So he's talking about the, the first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus Christ. He says, the first man is of the earth, earthy. Adam was of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And then he says, as is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, as Jesus Christ is heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Philippians 3.21 Even our bodies, yes, friends, even your body will bear the image of the heavenly. What did we talk about last night? Jesus is a body. Jesus is the forerunner of what it looks like for man, what, what man is supposed to look like. He's what man is supposed to look like. I don't mean God. He, he's the son of God. He, he is special. He will always be special. We will never be divine. You understand that? But as man, he is showing what man is supposed to look like. Body, soul, and spirit reunited one. Even the body, even the body made like unto his glorious body. 
made like unto his glorious body. <clears throat> you know that even, I mean, it's a little bit easier to imagine this then. This is mind-blowing anyway, what I'm about to say. It's a little easier to imagine it when I'm in glory, but it's true right now. You are, listen, this is holy ground. This is Brother Zach likes to say, it's too good to be true, but it is true. You are as sinless as Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't say you were God. I didn't say you became the Son of God. But you are as sinless as He is. This is the only way you can be a fit stone for God's building, is if you are fashioned like the cornerstone, clothed in His righteousness. Listen, that is a bold statement, but I'll tell you this, if that's not true, God cannot accept you. You must be, you must be as holy as he is, as sinless as he is to appear in the presence of God. It must be so. Remember that sin isn't just the big stuff. When I say you're a sinless, God's children are as sinless as Jesus Christ. Sin is just missing the mark. It's just not quite being as holy as God, not quite being as good as God. Even in that way, sinless, no missing of the mark whatsoever. And you may say, well, I don't feel very sinless this morning, but do you see that that is the wonder of grace? The wonder of grace is that it's true whether you feel that way or not, and one day you will do you know one day you'll actually feel that way? You, one day we will not only know it, that it is true and be able to believe by faith that it is true, but we will actually know what it feels like to feel sinless. It is coming. In 1 John 3, 2, he says, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this. So John says, we... We don't, well, there's things we don't know. We don't, either we, we can't imagine, we don't really know what it's going to be like, do we? So he says, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this. We know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, I'll give you my interpretation of what he really means, because there's a cause and effect happening here. John looks and says, well, I know I'm going to see him as he is. He said, I know that's true. I've been told that's true. Jesus himself told me that was true. He said, he told John the apostle in person, right? John heard him say, you're going to be with me. You're going to behold my glory. And John said, well, I'm going to see him as he is. But in order to see him as he is, I will have to be like him. I will have to be like him. What happened to the people who wanted to see him as he was before being made like him? We're talking about people like Moses. Lord, show me your glory. And God says, Moses, I love you, but that is not possible. You, you can't see my glory. If you see my glory, you will die. You, you're, you, your frame, you will disintegrate. It's not possible. <laughs> you can't do it. I'll show you my hundred parts. And that was enough to make his face glow, wasn't it? And so John says, but I know I'm going to see him, the unthrottled glory of the eternal Son of God. 
I will see him as he is. That means I will have to be like him. We will be like him in order to see him as he is, or we will be destroyed by his very light. So these living stones, you see in our text, these living stones, they're, they're chosen and added by God. By God. And that's what we see in Scripture, isn't it? In Matthew 16, Christ, the very first time he mentions church, it's right in the context of Simon, Barjona, you are blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, including you flesh and blood, son of a man, but my Father which is in heaven. My Father which is in heaven revealed that unto you. In Acts Chapter 2, that's what we see, again, a very important beginning. You know, Acts is a really important book because it establishes patterns. You'll see in the beginning of the book of Acts, things expounded on at length that later are just summarized very briefly or not mentioned at all. And, and the point is that in the beginning of the books of Acts, in the book of Acts, God is showing us how things work. Here's how this works. And here's what they preached, for example. You'll see longer sermons in the beginning of the book of Acts, and later it'll just say they preached a sermon, or it'll summarize it in two verses. Well, how do you know what they preached? They were preaching what they preached in the beginning of the book of Acts, over and over again. Well, in the beginning of in Acts 2, of course, the pattern that we see is pricked in the heart. They were pricked in the heart, meaning heart is no longer stone. Can't be stone to be pricked. Thank you, Brother Zach. Can I, can I, I'm not, can I just make a, a plug for the King James Version? Do you know that uh, it's in the King James Version of the Bible is where you see the contrast of pricked in the heart and cut to the heart. It's, it's not in all of them. We see that contrast in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, they're pricked in the heart. There's another place where they're cut to the heart and they want to kill them. Because the heart's stone. They get as far as the heart and it stops. When well, Acts 2, they're pricked in the heart. Men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? We baptize, uh, respond in faith, right? And they are baptized. The pattern is they're pricked in their heart, meaning God's already worked. They're baptized and they're added to the church. Added to the church that's already there. That's the pattern that is established. And then it says, and the Lord added to the church. That's the point we're getting at, right? It's the Lord who adds to his own building and makes the stones fit to be so. Let me turn back to my, my, my Peter here. I really want my Ephesians, but we're, we're just going back and forth. Okay, so Christ is the cornerstone. We, his people, are the other stones, the living stones that make up the structure of the building. The building is living stones. Why? Because he is a living stone. The building, by the way, is people, human beings, because he is a person. And a human being. That's the, the building. Well, what's in the building? I thought we were in the building, right? We're all in this building right now. That's not actually what the scriptures say. 
We're the building. So who's in the building? God is in the building. The building is a habitation of God through the Spirit. That's the purpose of the building, to be a house for God, for Him to dwell in. What happens in the building? Spiritual sacrifices. Why? Because this building groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. It's not just any building, it's a temple. Number one, look, any, any pagan understands what a temple is. I, I mean, then or now, I'm not talking about. I mean, pagans then, they had temples. False religions today that have temples. What's in a temple? The God. That's what a temple does. It houses the God. Now, for them, it's just an idol. We read this morning, their gods are but idols. Our God made the heavens. He is a living God. But he also has a temple here and now on this earth, and his temple is built of people, living stones, and he dwells in them. God is in the midst of her, David says in the Psalms, in the midst of her. The Holy Spirit is in the building. And now listen, the Holy Spirit is is kind of mysterious, Meant to be so in a way. And what I mean by that is that Jesus Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily and is meant to be so. If you want to see God, you look at Jesus Christ and you are seeing God. Isn't that kind? Isn't that glory? The grace of God is marvelous. Because what we, what, I can't get too distracted by this, but when God says, you want to see me? Look at my son. And guess what we see when we look at the son? We see a a man. We see someone we can relate to. We see someone we can actually kind of understand. We see someone who has been through things that we have been through. But the Holy Spirit is God. And lest um, lest we underestimate or underappreciate the reality and the power of the Holy Spirit, right, God the Father feels, he's a father figure, we can relate to that. Jesus Christ, he's a man, I can look at him and I can relate to that. The Holy Spirit is, what is the Holy Spirit? And does he really do anything, you know, is kind of the question. Because I can't see him and I don't really relate to him. And and the translators in the KJV sometimes call him a ghost, the Holy Ghost. Well, let's not forget some things that happened. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, who was it that came? It was the Holy Spirit. There's a mighty rushing wind, flames and tongue, and the fire. And later, just one more. I love this one because it's because it's physical. In Acts chapter four, when the church is is praying, I don't want to go read the whole thing, and I won't. But they finish praying to the Lord, praying uh, not for deliverance from persecution. By the way, this is the first time the church is getting pressured. Persecuted. The first time some of the apostles have been uh, detained, not even hurt yet, but detained. And and the prayer that the church makes is for boldness. They say, Lord, look at us. We're being persecuted. Give us boldness that we may proclaim your name. That's their prayer. And what happens at the end of that prayer is the building shakes like an earthquake. The Holy Spirit shakes the building. You think he can't affect physical things? Oh, yeah, he can. He can. He probably does more than we think, but that's not really his 
primary way of operating today. But he's just as real, just as powerful as that. Uh, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Anybody have any experience with the wind in Memphis in the last month or so, right? There's a reason for that. You can't, none of us can stop it. None of us, if we could, somebody would have done it by now in Memphis. I promise you that. The Holy Spirit has power. The Holy Spirit is God, and God is dwelling in his building through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> now, he says, you are also built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Verse before that, he says, the building is fitly framed together and groweth unto an holy temple, a temple in the Lord. Now, he is referring to not just temples are a thing, but this calls to mind the, the tabernacle and the temple. He's, he's pointing, he's pointing there to help us understand and to help these people in particular understand what, what's going on here. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit too. The tabernacle and the temple both, what, what made them special? What was it that made them special? God dwelled in them. The eternal almighty God took up habitation in the tabernacle and the temple in physical form. Now, I can't, this, the Bible doesn't go into great detail describing what that cloud looked like, but it was there. And it could be seen, and it was God. And that's where He was. That's why, y'all know. See, that is why David longed to be the house of God. I want to be as close as I can, as much as I can, for as long as I can, all the days of my life, because that's where God is. That's where God really is. Now, does that mean that He absented everywhere else? Of course not. He's, he's omnipresent, but He was there. In a very special way, clearly, a very special way. Over and over, you'll find this phrase, thou that dwellest between the cherubims. That's the cherubims of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, because he was there, friends. There was a, there was a tabernacle, and there was a, a temple. And uh, I think Brother David Piles, for kind of learning this from him, realizing that you know that God didn't actually command the temple to be built. Solomon's temple, which by the way, the temple was glorious. The, the temple was probably one of the most beautiful man-made buildings anyone has ever seen, which is partly why it kind of became a problem for the Jews. They had so much pride in the building itself. They, they stumbled because of that. God didn't actually command the temple to be built. Now he honored David's desire. David wanted to build the temple. David longed to build a house for God. I've, I've got to take the time to turn back here because this just hit me this morning as I was listening to Brother Timothy preach about David. In 2 Samuel, look at how this ties together. The beauty of how this ties together. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. We're talking about David. Then the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar. That's good. A kingly dwelling. But the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. David's heart is, God should have a house better than mine. I want to build him a house. 
And Nathan said unto the king, Go do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. God honored the desire. God honored that heart. And by the way, jumping up over to Second Chronicles, when that temple is consecrated, the moment when uh, uh, Solomon finishes praying, what happens? Presence of God, the glory of God filled the house and they couldn't even get in the house because the presence of God was there. God honored this desire, but he didn't actually command the temple to be built. Let me keep reading here in Second Samuel. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house to dwell in? Are you going to build me a house? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of heater, cedar? God is saying, I never, I never told you to do that. I never, I never asked you to. You, you can't really build me a house. <laughs> Fit, right? You can't do it. Am I going to dwell in a house? And then he says, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheep coat. I took thee. Look, I, I took thee from the sheep coat, from following after. I, I mean, I, I have to skip ahead. He says, uh, in verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, y'all stay with me here, this is beautiful. As since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee, but he will make thee a house. So David, you're going, to make, you're going to build me a house? No, no, no. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to make you a house. And when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. Solomon. Yeah. Who else? What is he really talking about? I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to Find the perfect cornerstone, elect, precious, and I'm going to build you a house. <laughs> I will set up thy seed after thee, which thou proceed out of the bowels. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish his the throne of his kingdom forever. I'm just, I have to stop there. That's the promise, by the way. That was referred to again and again and again. That is the promise to David that of thy bowels, the Messiah will come and he will build me a house. Which house did God command to be built? The tabernacle. God commanded the tabernacle to be built in great detail. There's no question. He told him to build it. What did the tabernacle look like? It did not look like much on the outside. We're talking about the church, y'all. God commanded the tabernacle to be built. Now, he honored David's desire to build him a house. And David's heart is beautiful. David, in fact, he donated most of the material. He, he prepped as much as he could. But he commanded the tabernacle to build. The tabernacle did not look, was not attractive. The tabernacle was not something to take pride in. In fact, they, maybe they were a little bit embarrassed sometimes. You know, visitors from other nations come in and, where's your temple? Well, it's, it's over there. It's that thing covered in hair and it's a tent, you know, it's, uh, listen, it, 
it didn't look like much on the outside, but it did on the inside. Inside that tent, now there's a courtyard that was open, and then there's a tent, and in that tent, there are two parts, the holy place and the most holy place. Inside that tent, everything was beautiful. I can't go read about it now, even to the natural eye. Beautiful on the inside. Lord willing, tonight we're going to be in Psalm 45 about the bride. The king's daughter is all glorious within. The tabernacle is beautiful on the inside. The only people who actually saw the inside of that tent part of the tabernacle, though, were the priests. Those are the only people. And the only person who saw the most holy of holies was the one high priest. What does our text say? Yes, we are the stone. We're the building. God is inhabiting it. But also, we are the priests. Priests unto God. We're seeing the inside. We're seeing the beauty within and oh, by the way, the veil is rent. The veil to the holiest of holies is rent in twain. And now the priests in this house, they see all the way to the middle. They are just walking in and out, dwelling with the very presence of God. That is the picture the scripture is painting for us. Listen, the glory that was inside the tabernacle was, it was great, wasn't it? It was the very presence of God, but there was very little revealed. And there were very few who got to see anything about that, to be honest. Today, it's just blown wide open for all his people. The door is wide open. By the way, the veil has been rent, but the veil is also Christ. You know, you don't walk in on your own. Over there in Hebrews, it says the veil is his flesh. We're still entering through a veil. But it's through his flesh that the crucified, sacrificed son of God, that's our way in. I love saying this at home. I, I'm going <clears> to. <throat> I know I need to close here. I don't want to get in a hurry. Um, if, if you were around, if you were one of those priests that ministered in the holy place and you walked in the next day and you saw that the veil was torn, you think you would have been like, Great, cool, and walk right in. I don't think so. I mean, I, the way's open, but you know what happened to people who went into the most holy place? Even the one guy that was supposed to, any other time of the year than when he was supposed to, dead. So, whoa, there's this gaping. It might have been actually scary. I don't know. You know what? That's where people die. That is where people die. They, they see God and they die. I don't, I don't want to be close to that. See, that's our situation. We, we don't want, we don't want an unveiled entrance into the presence of God. We need Jesus Christ. He's the veil. We walk up to the door and he comes out and stands next to us and says, come on in and holds our hand. He's the veil of his flesh. That's what he says in Hebrews. Okay. I'm just close here. <clears throat> this house is better than the tabernacle. It's better than the temple. And the temple was beautiful even by worldly standards. This house is better. This is the house that God built. Ye are God's 
building. It is a living building. It grows. You are God's, he actually says, you're God's husbandry. You're God's building. We could preach another sermon. That word husbandry is so rich. We don't use it much today. I mean, you might say farmer uh, or gardener, but those are really sad little words compared to the richness of the word husbandry. But that's what he's getting at. He's tending. It's a growing building. It grows. It's a living building. It's made of living stones built on a living cornerstone. And God's presence is just as real here as it was to that high priest who walked in and saw a physical form of God. Just as real as that. Even though we don't see it as a physical cloud, he's here. That's what the scriptures say. He dwells here. This isn't a place he just shows up once in a while. You see, this is his home. This is his house. Just like your house. is isn't just a place you visit where you dwell. It's where you carry out your operations, isn't it? It's where you come home to rest at night. God dwells here. Let me once again just close by reading a few from the Psalms. It's a long list of these. My intent is just to keep feeding them to you as we go this weekend. There is a river, Psalm 46, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The gates of hell shall not prevail against her, nor anybody else. You know, the point of him saying the gates of hell is if the gates, the strength, the if the gates of hell can't prevail against the church, neither can anybody else. Okay. God shall help her, and that right early. Psalm 84, 4. Blessed are they, blessed are they, that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee. Psalm 36. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Your best chance of drinking of the river of God's pleasures right here, right now, before we get to the river of life there, is in the house of God. Psalm 65, 4, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. And Psalm 92, 13, those that be planted, husbandry, guard, those that be planted in the house of the Lord will grow up really strong and capable, and then they'll move off and do great things somewhere else. That's not what he says. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. Please let me take a moment here. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. I am so thankful for you older children of God. Younger people, do you hear what he just said? They're still bringing forth fruit. If you're planted in the house of God, you'll flourish in the courts of God and you'll still bring forth fruit in your old age. They shall be, they shall be fat and flourishing. Listen, these old people, they look not fat and flourishing sometimes, right? right. Older people, can you say amen? What the Lord says, they will be fat and 
flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. That is what you older gray heads proclaim today. Fruitful, fat, and flourishing to show that the Lord, you have proven, proven to us who are younger, still proving. If it wasn't true, you would have left a long time ago. You've been through enough, right? That the Lord is my rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. Ye are God's building. Ye are God's husbandry. He dwells here among us in Zion and his church. God bless you.